So turn to Psalm 58, one of those hard psalms, one of the imprecatory psalms that you stumble across if you're new to reading Scripture and you think, what on earth have I just read? How does it fit? Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When When He aims His arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may He sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when He sees the vengeance. He will bathe His feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now, Lord, through a hard psalm, would You open our minds and hearts to see You more clearly, to to, to see the desperate wickedness of sin, what it brings, to, to know that there is indeed a God who reigns, and that we not only can make our appeal to Him, but we must, as we surrender all to You, and for the sake of the coming of Your kingdom, we pray. Amen. So trigger warnings. They're a really big deal in some circles today, on some college campuses especially, because there are folks who who feel that they need to be warned before they hear anything distressing, lest it trigger them emotionally. So consider this your trigger warning. Because the imprecatory psalms, they're distressing. Imprecatory refers to a prayer that calls down God's curse upon evil and those who do it. Imprecatory prayers are bold, even harsh, as they call on God to come and deal quickly, even violently, with the wicked. And so surely as you're reading through the Psalms, which I hope many of you are regularly, you run across these. For example, here in verse 6, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. You know, kick them in the mouth, God. That's harsh. Psalm 69, 23 and 24, Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. Get them, God. A prayer like that raises real issues for us today living on this side of the cross of Christ. I mean, can can we pray like that? Should we? Would it even be right for us to pray like that? 
Especially in light of Jesus' command in places like Luke 6.27 when He says, I say to you who here love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So how do we reconcile these things? Are the imprecatory prayers like this just holdovers from an Old Testament era that really have nothing to say to us today? C.S. Lewis evidently thought so. Or, as God's Word, do we have some things here that we need to learn? Well, I want to show you that we have much to learn from the imprecatory Psalms and that, indeed, we not only can but must pray like this. Because here's the question. How do you pray when you see wicked people doing evil things that are bringing harm to others? Do you just ignore that? Do you just say, oh well, you know, God will take care of it eventually. No big deal. Or do you go to Him and say, Lord, do something about this. Let's look at these Psalms. Let's look at this one. And the first thing that we see in a psalm like this is that when we do see evil taking place, we must, in fact, call it what it is. We must call it out. If you learn nothing else this morning, learn from this psalm that those who love righteousness cannot turn a blind eye toward sin. We call it out. Notice. That's what David is doing here. He is calling out the evil of these corrupt rulers in verses 1 and 2. Do you, do you indeed declare what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. Now notice David is being sarcastic here as he questions those he sees doing wrong. He even calls them gods. Now, A couple of your translations read that a little differently. It has to do with a little glitch in Hebrew, but the the best translation there is gods or even perhaps lords, uh, those who are up here. That's the idea. So so why gods? Why does he call them gods? Because as we go along the psalm, it's really clear that he is talking about human beings. Well, he calls them that because these are people who who have power over others. They're the judges, they're, they're the princes, they're the movers and shakers of the culture. And in that high position, they believe that somehow they're above everyone else. That they are the elite, they are the wise, they are the high and mighty, and everyone else is beneath them, and therefore beneath contempt, and can be used and abused at their pleasure. You see this in criminal organizations, you know, the head of the drug cartel who thinks that he can just kill whoever he wants with impunity and it's, it's just no big deal. The politician who thinks that she is above the law. You know, these mere mortals down here, they have to play by the rules, but, but not me. The powerful businessman who uses his influence to get whatever he wants no matter how it hurts the little guy, the, 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 the cultural leader in some way who, who this is what I want to happen and that whoever I have to crush to get there, big deal. Right? I mean, I mean, the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. That's not to say, of course, that everyone with power is corrupt, but power tends to corrupt everyone. And so it's people who use their power to abuse others that David has in mind as he calls them gods. 
And he has a question for them. He says, are you using that power that God gave you? That's the implication. Are you using that power to decree what is right? Are you applying it righteously? Are you ruling justly according to God's Word? Are you bringing the good that God puts you in that position to, to, to bring? I mean, He's the one who's really God. You think you're a God, but He's the one who is truly God. So are, are you judging and acting righteously according to His Word? What's the answer? Verse 2. No, they're not. No, he says, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on the earth. They're using the power that they have for themselves in a way that's bringing harm and evils to others. And, and notice why. Notice, notice where that is springing from. He says it's because as they rule and judge, they are ruling and judging not according to God's Word, not according to God's holy standard, but what? Do you see it? according to the corrupt standard of their own hearts. No, you're not dealing uprightly. From your hearts, you're devising what is wrong. Do you understand that whenever a man, a woman, makes their own heart the standard by which they lead and judge others, they will always lead and judge astray. Yes, yes, there is the image of God in us and He, he lets e- e- even the worst of us think correctly sometimes as it suits His will. But when that heart, apart from Him, is what is allowed to rule, you get bad rule. You know, If you ever read the decision on Roe v. Wade so long ago, um, it wasn't how we were applying the standard of law. We're, we're looking in and saying, this is what we think the standard should be. And that standard will always be Corrupt. Why? Well, Jeremiah said it in Jeremiah 17 because the heart is deceitful and wicked. Uh, Jesus said it clearly in Matthew 15, 19 to 20. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Where does that come from? When I turn away from God and turn inward to myself and I say, What I find there is what I'm going to do. Now, of course, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the doctrine of total depravity. Listen, theology matters. right? And we see that beginning in verse 2. No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on the earth. As as you're being led by your own human standard apart from God, this is the evil you're doing. Verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Total depravity. Total depravity, if you're not familiar with that phrase, doesn't mean that every person is as corrupt as they possibly could be. Thank the Lord. But what it means is that corruption lives in the heart of every person, that it infects everything people do, every judgment that they make apart from God, every action that they take. And verse 3 says, The wicked, those who don't know God and aren't led by Him, are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. Now listen, if you don't understand that, If you don't understand that, this world and what happens in it will not make sense to you. 
If you just assume, as so many in this culture do, that people are basically good and they always try to do the right thing, they just mess up sometimes, if that's what you think, you're going to be really disappointed and frustrated most of your life. Notice what he says about the wicked. And by the way, who is that? Who are the wicked? Again, those who are apart from Christ. So, all of us, really, apart from the grace of God. This is where we begin. First of all, what does he say? He says they are born in sin. Verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. You do understand sin is not something you have to learn. Um, there's no instruction. Well, there are instruction manuals on it, but that's a whole other thing. Sin is what comes natural to the fallen human heart and to your heart apart from grace. Moral corruption sits at the heart of every person born into this world. Listen, that's what you need to be saved from. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, uh, verse 10, it is written, None is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. He means to do any good. No one does good, not even one. Sinners sin. Does that surprise you? Shouldn't. And so when a lost person follows his or her heart and does what comes natural to them apart from God's grace, this is where it leads. In your heart you devise wrong. Your hands deal out violence on the earth, which by the way puts the lie to that little adage, right? Follow your heart. I'll look down inside myself and this is what I feel. I feel I'm this. I feel I'm that. Therefore I must do... No! Your heart lies to you and leads you astray. Which is the second thing. They are born... Liars. Verse 3, again, they go astray from birth speaking lies. Romans 3, verse 4, let God be true and get every man a liar. People lie. Your children lie. Did you teach them that? I mean, they got it from you, but did you say, here's how you lie? Well, no. No, because this is the thing that comes natural from the human heart. They came out of the womb with that seed of corruption already planted in their hearts through Adam. So we're not surprised, are we, when politicians lie? And do politicians lie? We're not surprised when advertisers lie to us because they're always lying to us. We're not surprised when the powerful lie to get their way because that's what broken humans do. I just read an article this week as I was preparing for this message from World Magazine. I'm about three weeks behind, so it's an older one. But it was about a Harvard Business School researcher who was studying honesty and how people fill out their tax forms. And yet now she has been exposed for lying about the very research she was doing. And so she's studying lying and she lied about it. That's fallen human nature. And so when sinners do that, when sinners follow their own fallen hearts and do as they please, they bring great harm. It's all around us. Verse 4 and 5, the venom of a serpent is under their lips. They're like deaf adders stopping their ears so that they don't hear the voice of the charmers or the cunning enchanter. Those who give themselves over to sin bring harm to others. Those made in God's image. They're like snakes. Their they're very words inject poison into the veins. You know, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have bad consequences. 
And people running around spreading really unbiblical bad ideas are bringing harm. Their, their actions harm those that they abuse. Paul goes on in Romans 3, uh, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths of ruin and misery, uh, the way of peace they have not known. And so they don't acknowledge God. They don't care what God says. They, that they care only what they, about getting their own way. This is the human heart. This is, this is your heart apart from Christ. This is, this is why what goes on around you is going on. It says they're, they're, they're by nature in this sinful condition, death to God. Uh, like, like, a char- like a snake that won't listen to the charm. It's going to bite anyway. They don't listen and they won't listen. They, as Romans 1 says, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They refuse to be charmed by grace. They bury their heads in the sand so they don't have to hear what God says. And you and I were just like that. Apart from His grace. Why? Because they are committed to the lie of personal autonomy. That's the God of this age. I'm in charge. My will is what matters. I will do as I please, no matter what God may say, no matter who else it hurts. If it benefits me, I'm doing it. That's what David is talking about here. When sinners give free reign to their hearts over against the objective standards of God's Word, this is the result. A broken world, broken homes, broken lives... The abuse of the innocent, sex trafficking, violence in the streets, abortion, child abuse, gender theories that result in the mutilation of children in the name of therapy, all the things that we see taking place in our world today. And so David's concern here is not, let's be clear, what David is praying about here is not, hey, there's a guy over there I personally don't like, get him, God. This is not about a personal vendetta. David's concern is is with the wicked who are using their power to bring wicked things into the world that are bringing harm and devastation to others. And when you see that, what should you do? Just ignore it. Complain on Facebook. You know, post some really, really blistering memes. Or how about this? Start with prayer. Go to the one who actually has the power to do something about this and begin to ask him to step in with that power. There's a second thing this morning. From this psalm we learn we must call on God to put an end to the evil we see taking place around us. Verse 6, O God, notice he prays, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether green or ablaze, may He be swept away. May He sweep them away. This is a form of praying, Your kingdom come, O God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring righteousness to this place of unrighteousness. And notice, it is a prayer. All of the imprecatory psalms are prayers. Now, why is that important for us to see? Well, it's important because one of the problems that people have with these imprecatory psalms is they don't really understand what is happening here. They hear the violent language, and it is violent. 
And they assume that David himself is the one being vindictive and violent here. After all, David lived in a bloody time and David was himself a man of bloodshed. But pay attention to what is actually happening as David here is being led by the Holy Spirit to write this down for us. David here is not taking matters into his own hands. He is not saying, this is what I'm going to do to these people. Which, by the way, he was the king of Israel. He could have done that. But here, he is asking God to take action to bring an end to the harm he sees people doing. Imprecatory prayers are prayers of the oppressed, the broken. David probably wrote this one before he was king, who are seeking God's justice. And that's the thing to keep in mind. Evil is happening right now, right? Do you own a phone? Do you have news somewhere? People are being harmed and crushed and wounded and broken. Wrong is being done. Lives are being Ruined, And when we see that, what do we need? We need God to act. The very nature of evil in the world is such that it requires a response from God. So where do you begin to see that response? Again, you begin with prayer. You go to God and ask Him to do something about it. By the way, notice these are not tame prayers. There is a sense of outrage in these prayers. Are you ever outraged by evil? Dr. Richard Phillips in his commentary said, the problem today is not that Christians tolerate prayers like these in the Psalms. The problem is that they will not pray like this against the very kinds of evils we see taking place all around us. I think we have to be honest that we are often far too passive about evil. Hey, listen, there are things that you ought to be outraged about. Child pornography with child pornographies, first putting it out there and just getting away with it. Young men and women who are being exploited uh, through trafficking and other ways to satisfy the lust of evil people. Young men and women being taught often in school systems that this is just what you're for, that your body is to be thrown away loosely and simply because you're just an animal and none of it matters anyway. That's outrageous. State governments that advocate and promote the killing of the unborn and are proud of that fact. The governor just across the way over here in Illinois wants his state to be an abortion destination for the nation where they'll even pay for them, and they're doing it in California too, right up to the moment of birth. That's outrageous. And so imprecatory prayers happen when you are provoked by the evil you see taking place around you. You see it. You know it's not right. You know it needs to stop. But you don't have the power to step in and stop it. What do you do? I've often thought about the Jewish people under the Nazi regime. You think you wouldn't pray an imprecatory prayer as the Nazis are going door to door and dragging people you know and love to the gas chambers? Or dear Christian friends in places like North Korea or China. What do you do when you hear of these things? You just wring your hands, you know, get all worked up and maybe post a few things. Or worse yet, 
Just shrug your shoulders and move on to the next story. I was reading recently about our particular Baptist forebearers in England and how they cried out against the slave trade. Now, to the shame of many Baptists here in the U.S., the Baptists in England were stalwartly against the whole practice of chattel slavery. They were passionate against it. They preached. They cried out. They prayed. They had prayer meetings. They said, God, end this monstrous iniquity. And they prayed and prayed until God used a man named William Wilberforce to bring it to an end in England. What are we passionate about? What evils do we see taking place around us that we ought to be begging God to end? Old Testament scholar Eric Zinger said, All too often Christians simply wring their hands in the face of oppression as though we were powerless to do anything to stop it. But such injustice is an offense against God's created order and therefore deserves to be laid before Him in prayer. Imprecation does, uh, does that by saying, Your world was never meant to be like this, God. Do something to make it right. Richard Phillips uh, likewise says that uh, the Bible in fact rebukes us for not taking these sins seriously. He said, David's example challenges us to examine why we're not similarly outraged against the corrupt and deadly actions of ungodly powers. Christians living in America and the West are surrounded by a society that is collapsing under the concerted efforts of men and women who are bent on removing godly influences from civic life. These wicked rulers and cultural elites are proposing, performing, and protecting activities that descend to the level of the worst evils of the Old Testament. Christians today should be asking themselves Derek Kidner's question whether an impassioned curse of tyrants is better or worse than a shrug of the shoulders or a diplomatic Silence. When evil is on the ascendancy, that ought to provoke Christians to pray strong prayers to a mighty God. So what should we pray? Look at David's example beginning in verse 6. First, we should pray that God would take away the power of the wicked to do evil. That's the point of the teeth kicking in verse 6. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions. What do lions and snakes use to hurt people? Their teeth. So David says, God, defang them, speaking of the wicked in the land. They're trying to eat up the righteous, so take their teeth out. Remove their sharp threat. Leave them powerless. But a toothless lion is little threat. A fangless serpent is no more than a worm. Just step on it. Do you see the point? We pray, God, take away their power to do evil. Nullify their vile, offensive weapons. Do we pray like that? Stop it. Stop them, Lord. Second, we should pray that God would remove them, that He would end their reign, taking them from office, taking them from that position, uh, whatever it is that lets them hurt people, God, take them out. In fact, there are a series of four pictures here that are all very graphic and they're all saying the same thing. God, take them down. Verse 7, Let them vanish like water that runs 
away. It's the picture of a flood. You ever seen a flash flood? David would have known flash floods. Israel's filled with these little dry ravines called wadis. When the rain comes, suddenly a wall of water is heading towards you. David says, they're coming like a flood. God, dry it up. Let it absorb into the ground and evaporate. Let that power of evil be gone. Verse 7 further says, they're like archers who are out to kill us. When He aims His arrows, let them be blunted. I love this one. Take those sharp arrows they're firing and turn them into nerf darts. Let them just bounce off. Verse 8, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Now snail here is not the best translation. Both halves of this verse actually refer to a miscarriage. And it's graphic, right? Don't be triggered. But here the wicked are and they're conceiving this plot to bring harm. And David says, Lord, they're conceiving a plot. Abort it. Don't let that thing see the light of day. Let it dissolve into nothingness. Verse 9, sooner, No sooner are there pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether green or ablaze, may He sweep them away. Lord, they're trying to start a fire. They want to burn it all down. But before they can even get enough heat going to to boil water, would you just blow it out? Would you sweep them away, literally whirl them away? Send your whirlwind, Lord. Send a storm and a tornado to snuff it out. Do you pray that way when you see evil gaining ground? God... You've got the power. Do something. Stop the flood of unrighteousness that's coming at us. Blunt their arrows so they become harmless nerf darts against those they're trying to sue and manipulate and bully. Lord, abort their evil plans so they don't bear fruit. Blow out the fire they're trying to start. Send them whirling. Do you pray like that? I don't pray like that enough. Do you pray like you believe God can and will do that? Again, if you learn nothing from this psalm, learn this, when God's people see evil at work, rather than wringing their hands or posting their memes or just getting upset, we must pray and cry out to God and seek and beg Him and believe Him and trust Him who has power to do something about it. Oh, I think we vastly underestimate the power of God through prayer. In fact, Jesus told a parable along those lines, didn't He? Do you remember it in Luke chapter 18? He says He told them a parable to this effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to Him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while He refused and afterwards said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor man, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice so that she won't beat me down by continually coming. And then Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. And will not God, who is not unrighteous, but is perfectly holy and loves righteousness, will He not give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? We must pray. I know that's not all we do. That's another sermon. But we begin with prayer. Which brings us to the final thing, and that is verses 10 and 11. The climax of this prayer, as we read through it in Psalm 58, is this. 
we can have confidence God hears and will act. We can be confident, in fact, that the day is coming when evil will forever be put down and righteousness forever exalted. Look at verse 11, 10 and 11. 10 and 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. And mankind will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Hey, you want a preview? Here's where it is coming. Here's where all these prayers are being fulfilled. David says two things are going to happen. Number one, in the end, the forces of evil will be decisively and finally put down forever. And number two, the righteous will rejoice and reign with God forever to the praise of His glory. I mean, look at it. The forces of evil will be decisively put down forever. And again, the language in verse 10 is graphic. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. If anybody's going to get a little triggered, it's going to be with this verse. This is the verse I struggled over saying, do I really want to preach this? Rejoicing as you bathe your feet in blood? What's up with that? Just some kind of weird blood ritual? No, no, think about an ancient battlefield. Here we are, you and me, we're in our little village trying to live our lives in faithfulness to God. One day, we look up on the hills and a great horde of marauders has appeared covering the horizon, blotting out the sun. And they're here for one purpose. They want to burn our little village to the ground. They want to kill everyone who resists and enslave the rest, rape the women, abduct the children. That's the kind of thing that happened often in the ancient world. And we're terrified. We're no match for them. We go and we cry out to God in our anguish. We say, oh God, do something about this. They're too strong for us. And then like a scene from the Old Testament, he sends an army of mighty angels who sweep the field and slaughter the enemy. Not one is left. All of their broken bodies lie scattered on the ground. And as we rush onto that battlefield to celebrate His victory, what do we see? What do we see? Look down at your feet now. They're covered in the blood of a vanquished enemy. Our feet are bathed in blood, not because of some weird ritual, but because God has given a total victory. The enemy that threatened is gone forever. Their power to harm is broken decisively. And we didn't do it. He did it. God heard our prayers and vanquished the enemy. God is the warrior here. Oh, there's so many images like this. Let me just read this one. I'm a little over, but you've got to hear this. Isaiah 63, 1-6. You ever read this? This is Jesus. We often have Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Look upon this little child, and I'm so grateful that He is meek and mild to those He redeems. But listen to this. Who is this who comes from Edom, the place of battle? In crimsoned garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Here's Jesus on the scene. He says, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Then we ask him, why are your 
garments red? Why is your apparel like one who treads the winepress, you know, all splashed and splattered with these red drops? He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was there with me. I, I, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption had come. It was time for me to step in. I looked, but there was no one to help. There's no human that can do this. I was appalled, in fact, that there was no one to uphold. So my own arm worked my salvation. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. That is strong. Can you handle that? That's the final scene of history, by the way. When all that is exalted itself against God is finally put down forever. Revelation picks up on that image. Revelation 19.13, speaking again of Jesus, says He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. Oh, don't be squeamish about the blood. The blood represents God's final victory over every evil. And of course reminds us, does it not, of the blood of Christ shed on our behalf. That stroke that should have fallen on us like it fell upon them, fell upon Jesus in our place, and that is our salvation. And when the righteous see that, we're told that they're going to rejoice. Verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance, meaning the vengeance of God. Notice, by the way, this vengeance isn't ours to take. We didn't do this. But we receive it from His hand and we celebrate it. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So again, please hear me. We're not seeking personal vengeance. And precatory prayer isn't a weapon that you, you unleash against the guy that grabbed your parking spot. We don't go out to slaughter our enemies. But we rejoice when God puts down evil. Right? Again, listen to the longer verse. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, don't take a vengeance for yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. It's written, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. But for you, the next verse says, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. <laughs> vengeance belongs to God while we pray for our enemies in Jesus' name. Violent prayers against evil don't lead us to be violent people. We're not Muslim. There's not a verse in here that says, strike off the head of the infidel. But we pray that God would end the evil. We pray through conversion. Warren prayed that. We pray, Lord, save them through repentance. And He will either save them through repentance or He will bring them into judgment. But either way, evil will be put down forever. Verse 11 says, God is going to do this. And when He does it, here's the climax, don't miss this, we get the joy, He gets the glory. We get the joy because righteousness will forever be vindicated. Verse 11, mankind will say, everyone will look, they'll see it, they'll say, wow, surely there is a reward for righteousness. Does the world believe that now? They don't believe that now. They don't believe there's a reward for righteousness. They laugh at righteousness. 
that they think you are stupid to hold yourself back from the enjoyment of sin, from giving in to the dictates of your heart. They say to you, why would you do that? Why would you rob yourselves? Come on, uh, indulge yourself with us. Follow the desires of your heart. This is life. They can't see that that's the road that leads to destruction. They can't see that there is indeed a reward for righteousness and it's glorious. They don't believe Jesus when He warns in Matthew 13 that the Son of Man will come and the angels will gather out of His kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers and He'll throw them into the fiery furnace to that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun and the kingdom in the kingdom of their Father, oh, He who has an ear to hear, let Him hear. They don't believe that. Do you believe that? When Christ returns, every eye will see Him on that day. And the righteous will hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. There is a reward for righteousness. While those who have clung to their evil will hear Him say, Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So take heart, saints. It looks at times like evil is winning. It looks at times now like Satan has the upper hand and unbelief has won. And so many believe that today. So many who professed faith in former times now turn away because they they don't want to take that judgment from the world. They don't want to be the objects of that hatred. They don't want to have to pay that price because they have forgotten there is a reward for righteousness. Don't you forget that. We get the joy. God gets the glory. Because all will acknowledge Him that day. Last line, they will all say when they see it, surely there is a God who judges the earth. Again, this is where the whole thing comes to an end, right? This is where history is headed. And you talk about being on the right side of history. This is the history I want to be on the right side of. So go ahead, world. Mock God now. Go ahead, ignore Him. Refuse Him. Belittle those who cling to Him. But one day very soon, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will acknowledge Him now, gladly, with joy, anticipating that day of His return and reward, or you will acknowledge Him then in fear and terror of the judgment that has fallen. Oh dear one, do you treasure Him now? Do you treasure His righteousness? Do you love His appearing? Are you anxious to see Him come and set right all that is wrong as He promises so that these evil forces will forever be vanquished and righteousness will forever be glorified? Do you pray for that? See, that's one of the things these imprecatory prayers should be teaching us. Pray like this. Pray for that day. Believe that God still reigns. Believe and trust that evil will be stopped. It will not continue. Don't be timid about praying, God, put it to an end. Do it now, right? But I know for certain you're going to do it eventually. And then live, Christian, live in light of that fact. 
Live in light of what is coming, knowing that your life needs to match up to that righteousness that He's given you as you pray and live to the praise of His grace and trust that He is going to do everything He has promised. So let's pray. Father, these are hard psalms, but they're glorious when we understand that they point to Your massive and beautiful sovereignty and power. That there is no one like You. That this foolish world and its shrieks and cries, it's already in flames, but one day it will burn worse than anything that took place in Hawaii or anywhere. That there is that day coming that no one can abide. And God, our prayer even now as we think of those who have set themselves in opposition to You, we want You to stop their evil. We pray for them that You would stop it by turning their hearts and doing like You did Saul, doing like You did me, bringing them from death to life, from judgment to righteousness. God, You can do that. But at the same time, we pray by whatever means you need to do it, stop the evil that is infesting this world, that is crushing and harming and misleading and bringing such pain and suffering. God, you can do it. We ask you to. And we pray in hope and confidence that in your good timing, that day will come. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.